News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer. Elsewhere in Brooklyn, hello. Hello there. Hey. And rejoining us now is uh, Politico New York Bureau Chief for City Hall, Sally Goldenberg. Hello. Hi. Hey, Sally. So Sally's um, in Room 9, right, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And over the last few weeks, you've been giving a sense of what we're in for and what to expect from an Eric Adams administration as he's been having this funny sort of general election slash victory lap. And people are starting to figure out some of the uh, characters and uh, people around him, including at a fundraiser last night where he more or less said that, that he is here to stop the DSA and the socialists, which is sort of funny because I don't think they've, they've exactly been organizing against him since the election ended. But uh, can you fill us in on what we know now that maybe we didn't or new sides of Eric Adams we're seeing since the election and what that might say? about what we're in for next year, assuming he is the mayor, which I think we all are. Yeah, we can. I think we can safely make that assumption that he will comfortably win the general election, barring some information we don't know yet. Um, yeah, I think what we've seen in the last few weeks since Eric Adams won the primary is that he's really looking to make himself or define himself as a standard bearer of a particular type of Democrat that he feels and others like President Biden feel have been vilified by the left wing of the party. And I think he feels, I don't want to say he's looking for a fight, but I think he's very comfortable being in this fight. You know, he was at this fundraiser that the New York Post reported on where he said, we're going to regain control of our cities from this type of elected official. But as you pointed out, the DSA played absolutely no role in the mayor's race, did not endorse. Um, And for anyone who doesn't know, that's the Democratic Socialists of America, and it's an ascendant group within the Democratic Party that backed AOC and Tiffany Caban, who just took city council, and some other, you know, a few other people in the state Senate and assembly, but played no role whatsoever in the mayor's race. And the more organized kind of traditional left, the Working Families Party and people like that, I'd say barely played a role in the mayor's race. You know, they kind of couldn't get their act together. They were with Scott Stringer. They wanted to be with Diane Morales. They didn't think Diane Morales could win. They sort of reluctantly organized behind Maya Wiley at the very last minute. All that to say, they don't really, it's not like they're presenting a united front that is like taking over New York City and Eric Adams needs to stop them. But I think he is personally kind of offended by the fact that they think they stand for police reform. And here's a black man who is, you know, speaks openly about being abused by cops and then became one. And I think he feels like it's not for them to tell him what needs to happen in the criminal justice space. And so I think And I think he is offended by being told that he's not progressive enough. He got all of this union support. He has this line, like, they say they're woke. I never went to sleep. You know, so all that to say, I think Eric Adams is looking to, like, not avoid them the way de Blasio sort of hoped that they would accept him, didn't really like them, but kind of didn't know how to handle them. Eric Adams is like, bring it on. You know, I'll 
tell you why I really I'm the real Democrat who can, you know, fix things in New York. That reminds me just a little of a, a certain Andrew Cuomo, who has spent many years monologuing about how he is the true progressive against a um, ascendant lawmaking left in Albany as well. And, you know, Adams won the mayoral contest by pretty slim margin. We're talking about 10,000 votes. Maybe it would have been a little more if not for ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's slim. And then at the same time, you have people who in a lot of ways I think are to his left in Brad Lander, who's going to be the controller, in uh, Jumani Williams, who uh, will continue to be the uh, public advocate, and maybe with the new city council, which 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 we'll see. And it does seem like there is some fight for where the center of the Democratic Party is in New York City and New York State and nationally, and that Eric Adams and Joe Biden have seen reason to uh, link arms in presenting themselves as uh, as, as that future and the uh, true center. Obviously, it's a little easier for Adams because he doesn't have any power yet. So he's got a, a, a nice sweet spot right now where he can be very rhetorical and we'll see next year what it means. But uh, are, are they right about this and where the center of, of the party is in New York? Or is, does that remain to be seen? And is it smart of them to be sort of publicly making this case that way right now? I think that they're right that they both won their elections and that they were better than the candidates who were farther to the left of them. The fact that Brad Lander, who is kind of your standard, what we call like a white liberal in New York, you know, parlance, but, you know, could mean a number of different things. But, you know, he's left of center, working families party, you know, campaign finance reform minded Park Slope guy. The fact that he won in a field with people who are more moderate than he is indicated to me that he was a better candidate and, you know, so on and so forth. I think I don't really think voters go into the voting booth, especially in local races, maybe more so in federal races, but I don't think they go into the voting booth and say, Scott Stringer is here, here, and here on this position, and then my second choice is four out of five, and my third choice is three out of five. I think it's like, who do they feel they connect to? And Eric Adams doesn't vilify wealthy people, so I think they were very happy to finally be like, yes, we can, we don't maybe love him, but we're going to vote for him or maybe they voted for Catherine Garcia and made him second because he doesn't really like vilify them. And he has a life story that so many people in New York City Democratic elections relate to, you know, growing up poor, um, being a blue collar police officer, sort of working his way up into the Brooklyn Borough presidency. People just related to that. Brad Lander just outworked people. He worked harder than his opponents and he made a really kind of clean, clear case for himself. So I think there is there's definitely a set of voters and it might be larger than it was when Trump was in office. I'm fairly confident to say that it is that are a little worried about how far left the party's going, especially if crime is rising and there's graffiti and there's homelessness. But I don't, I would be really careful if I were advising any of these people to declare themselves the face of the party, because this pendulum shifts all the time and it depends so much on external forces and just on how good of a candidate the person is. Uh, Sally, I want to back up just a little bit and get your thoughts on Adams and Cuomo, because so much of what Adams will be able to do does hinge on a relationship with Cuomo. We know that Cuomo is in a bit of a a tight spot these days, uh, but he's definitely not 
down and out. And I think the frustration that so many New Yorkers had for the past seven plus years is that it seemed like de Blasio could never get on the same page with Cuomo, even when they were talking about the same policy positions, they had the same goals in mind, yet and still they could not work together. How confident are you, just based on, you know, you've covered Adams, you've covered Cuomo, you you know New York City and New York State quite well. How confident are you in their ability to kind of put some of these machismo egos aside and work for the benefit of both of their personal reputations and also for the benefit of New Yorkers? I think it depends on what comes out in the attorney general's report on Cuomo and how damaged he feels he is and whether the accusations against him in terms of, you know, um, both sexual harassment and how he handled COVID in particular with regard to nursing homes, how those are upheld as he goes into his own election year and whether he decides to run for re-election. You know, the governor is extremely politically calculating. And so I don't think any of these things are all that personal for him. I don't think he likes Bill de Blasio. And, and, you know, that's, that's been like very well established. I'm not revealing anything super insightful there. And they did work together years ago. And so there might just be bad blood that built up over time. But I also think that a lot of how Cuomo reacts to other politicians has to do with his own positioning. So if he feels very strong, you know, if the report that Attorney General Tish James is coming out with at some point Uh, I assume soon this year, let's say, if it doesn't really damage him too much, then I think he can go into this, he will think he can go into this relationship with Eric Adams with the upper hand. He controls how much money New York City gets from a number of different programs. He He just has more power. And basically, many things a mayor wants to do have to be approved by Albany. So he has the upper hand. Where Eric Adams has the upper hand is he, he's a fresh face on a big scene. You know, he's been around for a long time, but he's sort of new to, a, to the citywide elected scene. And while he didn't win with a huge margin, you know, he's, he's popular. I don't think his negatives are super high yet. And he is like, frankly, he won most black voters, which is what Andrew Cuomo has consistently relied upon to win re-election. When Andrew Cuomo's in trouble, and even when he's not, he turns to black Democrats in New York City to win his re-elections. Eric Adams is one of them. So he's going to always be closer to that part of the electorate that Andrew Cuomo can be because he comes from it. And that's how he also won. And so if Cuomo is politically damaged, he can't really go throwing elbows at Eric Adams day one. It's going to be a big problem for him. And he may not want to no matter what. He may say, I've had enough of these fights with de Blasio. I want to have a good relationship. This guy and I speak the same political language. It's not really Cuomo's style, but, you know, I guess he can't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too cynical. Like maybe they will see eye to eye on a number of things and work well together. I think he'll probably also appreciate that Eric Adams is not going to lecture him from the left, which he felt Bill de Blasio did, whether that's a fair characterization on his part or not aside, he felt, even though de Blasio helped deliver the working families party to him in 2014, and really I think did go into this relationship in good faith 
sometimes, not maybe not all the time, yeah. definitely tried to help him on the left. It still came across to Cuomo, it seems, as though de Blasio was kind of lecturing or pedantic. Condescending. So, <laughs> yeah, and I think Eric Adams isn't going to do that because he has as much a problem with the left, uh, if not more, and as much a chip on his shoulder about them as Cuomo does. So you could see in a world in which they're friends, but again, Cuomo's, you know, he's not one to make friends in this business. So right. it, it really depends on the positioning he feels going into January when Eric Adams takes over. I wanted to get your analysis on that because I'm fascinated by Cuomo and race, more specifically Cuomo and Black people. Because mm-hmm. if we remember, you know, when he tried to jump the queue in front of Carl McCall, there was that tension between, say, Cuomo and the Black electorate. And then he sort of was able to smooth that out over time. But even just anecdotally, so he's kind of on the, the right side of history and with Black folks right now. And anecdotally, it seems as though his troubles with, say, the nursing home and COVID don't seem to be resonating in particular communities because folks are like, well, I mean, hey, he had to lie. He's dealing with Donald Trump. So the the outrage that I think some of the press has is not necessarily trickled down into certain communities where it's like, of course he had to do whatever he had to do to protect us in the state of New York because at one point in time, Andrew Cuomo was the Democratic national figure of the person who's going to save us from Donald Trump and COVID and like the sheer incompetence of that presidential administration. And so moving forward... I'm just curious as to what it would look like if and when Eric Adams ever gets a slightly upper hand when it comes to uh, messaging within primarily the Black electorate, especially since Cuomo's coming up on an election year next year. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about that. I think both of these problems for Cuomo that the attorney general is looking into, both the COVID information and the sexual harassment accusations of former female staffers uh, haven't resonated yet. His polling is, I mean, I think his polling in some cases did take a hit. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you're right. Like overall, it hasn't really, it hasn't sunk him. Uh, I don't know that he's declared he's running for re-election, but there's certainly an assumption mm-hmm. um, among insiders that he will. And he has, you're right. He has always relied upon black voters in New York city to kind of bring him home, so to speak. And I Mm -hmm. think that's partly his political position being a bit more centrist. Um, As the black electorate tends to be. Right. And also, it's certainly older, certainly, you know, some age and up, 45, 50 and up for sure, right? And also, and I think you have spoken to me about this in many of my stories, he seems safe and you know, black voters, I remember you telling me that when I was covering the Bloomberg uh, presidential election brief as it was, you know, voters kind of are looking for, uh, black voters in particular are looking for somebody who feels like a common sense choice, who's not too, on whom they're not taking too much of a risk. And the fact that he's a three-time incumbent and that they liked his father Mm -hmm. and that he gives off the appearance and people do believe that he's competent and he's running the state well and the state is better off than it was at the start of COVID by a lot um, compared to particularly many other parts of, you know, the country that are more... Where black people uh, have relatives (laughs) in the South. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that Andrew Cuomo on his own without Eric Adams has forged a relationship with black communities, whether it's 
you know, some would argue it's not genuine, it's opportunistic, whatever, it's politics, right? So right. that's to be expected, in my opinion, but it exists without Eric Adams. But you're right about the upper hand. Like, Eric, again, Eric Adams is a black elected official who, in, in every way, he's 60 years old. He grew up in Southeast Queens. He was a police officer. He's kind of moderate in the scale of democratic politics. So he is just going to be more of that world that Andrew Cuomo relies upon electorally than Andrew Cuomo will ever be. So that puts him in a position of kind of inherent power. So speaking of inherent power for a minute, I think one advantage Eric Adams has in his relationship with Cuomo is that he's not coming in demanding something. Uh, de Blasio, because of the campaign he ran, had to demand a millionaire's tax. He'd promised this, and that's what was going to pay for pre-K. And that was right when Cuomo was running for re-election. And it was part of what caused the bad blood between them. Like, when I'm on the ballot, you want me to do this. Mm -hmm. Adams comes in without any such proposal. In fact, I don't think anyone running this year had anything nearly as ambitious as pre-K. And so without that sort of baggage, Cuomo, in the meantime, I do think... As you're saying, he likes to play his position. I do think his position has shifted some. So when he needed to buy time with these investigations to find his political footing, it was trust the investigations, let this all come out. And now he actually sort of needs to buy money. His fundraising is lagged behind a Republican challenger, which is very new for him. He's been a potent fundraiser. And he's talking about how everyone involved with all these investigations except the people in the assembly who seem to be sort of working with him, are all suspicious, are all probably running for governor or want someone else to, which is sort of funny from the most powerful politician in the state. Like his concern is they're all playing politics. It's like, right. well, that that is the game. Um, back in New York, though, your your, your pieces for, the, uh, for Politico have been really invaluable for, for me and I suspect a lot of other people and just sort of getting a sense of, of Adams and the people around Adams. And you, you wrote a, a full article about one particular guy, uh, Frank Caron, that I thought was, was very interesting, who's been close with de Blasio, who's very close with Adams. And I was hoping you could just tell our listeners a little about who he is and uh, what role he's played in Brooklyn and what role he might play, you know, in an Adams city. Sure. Yeah. I So Frank Caron, and I just want to give a shout out to my colleague, Joe Anuda, who's sitting here with me in room nine, working his butt off on another story. Um, we wrote that together. And Frank Caron is an attorney with a really large, vast, successful law practice in Brooklyn. They do everything. You know, if you need a divorce lawyer, an estate lawyer, whatever it is, that firm, Abrams Fensterman, uh, has a lawyer who can do it. He is also the attorney for the Brooklyn County Democratic Party, which was at one point extremely powerful and successful and no longer is due to a large kind of growing reform movement that wants nothing to do with machine politics in Brooklyn. Anyway, so that's just a little primer on who Frank Crone is. He is friends with Bill de Blasio and I think over time grew closer to de Blasio because what he's done, and I have to say, I don't actually really know him, which is kind of funny because I've covered politics for a long time and he's been around, but he's not somebody, I don't know, maybe he makes himself known to other reporters, but he's not somebody I, I know super well. I know him from, you know, just piecing things together and talking about him to other people 
I mean, I've certainly spoken to him, but he's not one of these folks who's always like in city hall in the lobby demanding things and schmoozing with the press the way, you know, some of the lobbyists are, but he seems to be really effective at being a friend to people in need or in dark times. You know, the de Blasio folks, I think counted on him for fundraising and help during de Blasio's brief presidential election and kind of continued to consider him an ally. And some folks in the de Blasio orbit said that when things were really bad for him, for, you know, a variety of reasons, Frank Crone was there. He's like sort of, we, I think we described him as a port in the storm. That's kind of how he was described to me by people. So Eric Adams hasn't been in crisis like that, you know, but he ran an election with the close backing of the Brooklyn party leadership, not the party itself, but the leadership assemblywoman, uh, Rodney's Bichot, and Frank is part of that. And he provided him legal counsel on the race. Also personally, he said he's his personal attorney, which I, I didn't realize Eric Adams had a personal attorney, but he does. And it's Frank Carone. He fundraised for him or helped him fundraise or hosted fundraisers or whatever. Um, and he provided him office space at MetroTech, where Frank's firm has a lot of office space. So when the Adams campaign needed somewhere to do Zoom interviews on Morning Joe or whatever else they needed to do, that was an option for them. They rented out for an extremely low price and one that was only paid for after we started asking for it. They rented out a cubicle there. Crohn's staff also bundled Eric's petitions. So he seems like he was sort of an everything advisor to Adams. And he has a close relationship to Hasidic Orthodox Jewish leaders in Brooklyn who are politically important, who bring a lot of, if not a a large number of votes, they bring a unified block of votes. And Frank is close to many of those leaders. So I think he's, he's kind of everything, or he does a bit of everything Mm -hmm. for the Adams campaign. And I expect that he will have a role in helping them put together an administration. I imagine that he will, if passed his prologue, he did this with de Blasio, you know, makes recommendations on who should get what appointments, whether it's running an agency or sitting on a board, perhaps he'll sit on some boards himself that are Merrill appointed. Um, And then, you know, his firm has a ton of business before the city, real estate clients, taxi clients, and so forth. So he's really well positioned. So Sally, with Frank Carone, because I've I've definitely heard that name, and I I know people who did not vote for Adams are definitely concerned, and they feel like he's going to be a shadow government behind Adams, and the potential for corruption is so great. It's hard for me to tell whether or not some of this is just, well, this is politics. De Blasio did it. Bloomberg did it in different ways. I mean, Giuliani definitely did it. Dinkins did it with sort of former Koch people. I mean, this is how... You sort of put together a team, or are we sort of leaning on the line of legality? Is it a tempest in a teapot that people are so concerned that Frank Crone is going to have so much power in this administration? Are we looking at in the next, say, you know, eight months, 12 months of a Adams administration, are we going to have these kind of corruption headaches that, that plagued de Blasio for much of his first term? It's certainly, I'm certainly watching what role Frank Crone will play in the administration, um, but I think I want to be fair. Eric Adams hasn't taken the office yet, and I'm not aware of anything that he and Frank Carone have done together that is illegal, borderline illegal, ethical. That's a personal kind of judgment call. You know, some Mm -hmm. people just don't like the presence of special interests 
and the presence of, you know, machine party connected lawyers. And if people don't like that and they think that's inherently problematic, they're probably not going to like the Eric Adams administration and the role Frank Crone plays in it. But I'm certainly not going to judge, you know, six months before he takes office, whether he'll be legal, you know, they'll do anything legal or um, illegal or not, rather, because I think, you know, that wouldn't be fair for me to do. I really don't know. And I think I agree with you. It is it is politics. Right? There are people who have a politician's ear. There are people who are close to power. It's not um, it is problematic for some people, but it's not inherently uh, corrupt by the book or illegal. It can be. And it, and I think it's really important for the Adams administration if they care about that impression, which I would argue they should, if for no other reason than it, you know, it's just a headache when you govern, if people think you're corrupt and start looking into you, even if you're doing nothing wrong, you don't want your administration getting subpoenas. You don't want the press only writing bad stories. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, even if you're indeed. not doing anything wrong, that's a huge distraction. So if they're worried about that, then they have to put some conflicts of interest protocols in place to ensure that Frank Caron and others, he's not the only one, but uh, he's a prominent one, that they don't have undue access to City Hall. I, I agree with that 100%. I do worry that some of the press, from some of the stories I've just, you know, glanced at thus far, they're... It feels like certain members of the press are gearing up for a, a sort of corruption administration. And it's like, well, we're not there yet. We don't know. And I think because Eric Adams isn't from, say, the political elite class, it makes certain folks uncomfortable. And so they kind of want it to be a scandal where it's like, well, we don't have one just yet or maybe not ever. So I, I would implore you to sort of keep that level head with your folks in room nine. And it's like, you know this. It's like, help them not look for stuff when there's nothing to look for. Obviously, dig into it if it's there. But it already feels to me, because Eric Adams isn't sort of this new style Black politician that many reporters and I would argue white political elite voters are accustomed to, there's this feeling of not just outsider, but like, oh, he must be doing something wrong because he got here kind of without me. And it's like, yeah, he did. Like he got a lot of people who aren't from the political elite class to vote for him because he said certain things and promised others and and had a record for, for some of a work ethic that they believe in. So I think that's my biggest concern. I mean, the race class element of Eric Adams makes him a unique figure in New York City politics as far as executive leadership. Yeah. If I can jump in with just one thing there. So there's all sorts of interesting threads to pull on, and that's the press's job. So a Politico New York, for instance, about Eric Adams' real estate holdings and where he's living, that's that's a clean and important story. The people who are advising him. And I think it's actually really heartening to see reporting on all those things early on. And it's a way of keeping people honest that, that not just Eric Adams, but all politicians need some of to know that someone's watching. I think that the threat is people getting out over their narrative skis about what this means or, or putting in, in, in some sort of a narrative box that way before we've seen how he actually governs and what he's doing. And that, to me, is almost the distinction between reporters like like Sally and many others who are good at their jobs and editors who boo 
sit in offices and think about narrative and almost want to declare what the news is beforehand. And those are the same editors, I would add, who are often, you know, uh, older white guys, uh, much like myself in that way, at least, right, who missed Adams for much of this race, even as he was a leading candidate, uh, who are now geared up to say, hey, what can we find out about this guy? And this guy is dirty before he's done anything. And my gut is he's a very smart, ambitious politician who does not want to fail. Who's actually watched how de Blasio was dogged by investigations. And it is, you know, we'll see how scrupulous he is, how good his lawyers are and all those questions. But uh, I think the reporting is excellent. The danger is the narrative getting out ahead of things. I also think, I totally agree with that. You know, I think while we did... Um, we did those stories and I think those stories are important and I think they're fair. They were only some of the stories we did. I can only speak for Politico New York, but you know, people can read other publications and draw their own conclusions, but we certainly covered, you know, Eric Adams policy on illegal guns. And, you know, he made a proposal about working with the Port Authority to kind of track guns coming into New York City illegally at transit hubs. We covered that. You know, we covered the endorsements of the unions and so forth. So, like, it is, I think it's important for us in the press to hold politicians accountable. I think it's important to look at whether people who are connected have undue influence. I don't think it's, and I think you're totally right, Harry, it's not a good idea to draw a broader conclusion and particularly with somebody who is black and, you know, defines himself as blue collar, it can be really, really dangerous to say, oh, well, he's a crook. You know, like that shouldn't happen no matter what until, unless and until we have the evidence to back that up. But there's an added layer of self-awareness we all need to have. And I think you're right. It doesn't mean we don't look into, I think it's, you know, you want to know, kind of everything about somebody when that person is mayor, including where they live and whether they'll live in Gracie Mansion and all of that. We also want to cover what voters were thinking about when they went to the, um, you know, to the ballot box and his position on crime and a lot of other things. And I hope if anyone from his team is listening, they would also remember that for the next six months, we're going to kind of treat him like he's about to become the mayor. And if they don't make news or make him available or, talk to the press, there is that, there is that kind of space to fill, right? You know, de Blasio is winding down and he's going to be covered basically like the mayor in waiting. So I'm not saying he owes us anything, but practically speaking, you know, like we're working on, as I'm sure everybody is, how's he going to run different agencies? Who's he looking at for schools chancellor? Who's he looking at for police commissioner? How does he want to reform the police department? What's he going to do about Rikers Island and the rates of dyslexia, which he talked about all the time throughout the campaign. So we're certainly looking at all of that. And I hope that his, you know, staff uh, participates and cooperates on some stories and tells us where he is, you know, and when he's doing public events, which hasn't really been great about happening yet, but I'm hoping that changes because that also fills that space we need to just fill, frankly. I've got one more uh, sort of big picture question for you here. Eric Adams was not in love, I think it's fair to say, with the ranked choice voting system. Some of the people in the Brooklyn party organization who he's close with went to court to try to shut it down. We had a bad counting experience 
for reasons I think have less to do with ranked choice than with the uh, bipartisan Board of Elections disastrous patronage operation. Uh, but a lot of this is history that, that has a ton of echoes here. Previous experiments in New York in which good government groups looking to limit the power of Irish voters, in fact, shifted over to a proportional voting system for the brand new city council that was actually meant to kneecap the borough presidents uh, when those were richer patronage operations than they are now. Do you think that this new ranked choice voting system is going to be challenged again in the city, in Albany, or in the courts, say, over the next four years? Or do you think this is simply the uh, reality for the time being going forward? I don't know that these challenges will be successful. I mean, ranked choice is only in place for city elections. So once this, you know, there won't be another mayor's race for four more years. Um, I guess the city council is up again after redistricting. So it's possible if people don't like the results or feel that they were, you know, first and then they lost that first place standing that they will challenge it. It doesn't, you know, it won with the overwhelming support of those who voted in a referendum. So it kind of won fair and square. I don't really anticipate these legal challenges will be successful unless there's something happened that I'm unaware of in this election. And I, while I understand why the, why Eric Adams, I do understand his concerns with it and I don't think they're not valid. He won in the first round and then he won in the final round. So it didn't actually, it didn't hurt him. It's not like he won in the first round and then lost. But what he saw happen was his lead shrunk a lot, right? His, his initial lead, he was something around 31%. Maya Wiley was around 22%. Catherine Garcia was 19%. So a really healthy nine, nine and a half point lead. And then the way ranked choice is it artificially, not artificially, but it, it forces someone into 50% and reallocates all the bottom tier votes. And by the time Eric Adams got to 50%, Catherine Garcia, who was the real ranked choice candidate, went from 19% to 49 and change. So that is why he was concerned about it. I think they, you know, his team must have been looking at data that showed that there was the potential for somebody who didn't have a base per se, the way Catherine Garcia didn't really have like a political base, had never done this before, but just kind of had a, a message or, or not even a message, but like a campaign uh, that seemed to resonate with more people on a second, third place run than his did. I think they knew that was a threat and it was a threat. But I'm not sure what I guess what I'm trying inartfully to say is if somebody is first place at first and then wins anyway, I don't know that the incentive is there for that person to like mount this big legal challenge. Like he won. Most people who won in the first round still won. The margin might have changed. You know, Brad Lander won in the first round and then he won in the final round and so on and so forth. There were a couple of cases, I think, in the city council where that didn't happen, but generally speaking, it did. And so it's kind of time consuming and expensive to challenge something in court. The editorial boards for, you know, whatever they're worth. And I think it is something they're, they're for ranked choice. I mean, certainly the New York times editorial board, which proved itself to be a potent player. This cycle is really for ranked choice voting. So I don't know if it's going to like continue to be something people want to spend that much capital trying to dismantle in court. 
I mean, we'll see, I guess. And do you think that there's any issue with the campaign finance system the city has, which is very generous? It is meant to open things up to a wider range of candidates, uh, you know, who can show a basic level of support and the level of dark money spending we had for the first time in the mayor's race this year, where Adams, I believe, ended up outspending both Garcia and Wiley that way, or, or money was spent on his behalf, exceeded the money spent on both of their behalf. And does the matching funds thing still work if everybody has these big pools of outside money that can be used? And which, incidentally, may have helped Adams in a sort of ranked choice way, where some people who ended up behind McGuire or others sort of hedged their bets by also supporting the operations that were behind Adams. So if the question is, does the matching fund system work? I think the answer is yes. Um, It really... It, it was already one of the kind of most stringent systems in the country, made more so through a referendum that was put on the ballot by a commission de Blasio put in place a few years ago. It definitely gives people who don't have experience or an inside track a chance to get matching funds that, you know, put them on par and on a, on a level playing field with insiders. So you see Eric Adams and Scott Stringer getting their matching fund payments early. They're known commodities, they've run for office before, but then you see someone like Diane Morales or someone like Catherine Garcia, who've never run for office before getting matching funds. And the threshold is pretty low and, you know, to qualify, relatively speaking. So I think it works. It depends, I guess, on whether it's good or not, depends on your point of view. It certainly achieves the goal it intends to achieve. Now, what you're talking about, outside spending, that's really not regulated or controlled at all, a little bit, but hardly by the city or even the state, you know, the, that is a Supreme Court case from a decade ago, Citizens United, that allowed for outside money to be sort of spent at a rapid clip with no ceiling on it. And the city campaign finance board has attempted to put in place controls on that flood of outside money or the potential of it. The truth is there's no way to prove whether uh, there's coordination between a candidate and these outside interests. There's not supposed to be coordination. The best example of this this time around, it's just an easy example, is Sean Donovan, who never ran before, ended up getting 3% of the vote, ran on like a message of, you know, experience and management as a government, you know, a hired government veteran, and had a super PAC on his behalf that was funded to the tune of almost $7 million by his father. So there was like, it is hard to imagine, I'm not trying to accuse anyone of a crime here, but it is hard to imagine that the candidate and his father just never spoke. Obviously they're close. (laughs) I mean, like to spend that much money on a real long shot mayoral campaign would indicate they have a close relationship or maybe a really bad relationship that they're (laughs) mending. But, you know, um, I think Scott Stringer even requested like an investigation at one point into that, whether they were uh, coordinating. So that system is, it's, it's hard to control and it kind of does stand to make a mockery of the very good matching fund system New York has. I just don't know that, you know, short of a Supreme Court case overturning it, there's not a lot people can do. You can't stop, you know, Eric Adams benefited from it with hedge fund people who donated to him through a PAC run by a charter school operative. Um, Scott Stringer benefited tremendously not in the end, but he got a ton of money from the teachers union, both the local and the national, I think. 
everybody with the exception of Diane Morales had one of these. Maya Wiley had one being spent on her behalf that George Soros and the 1199 Healthcare Workers Union contributed to. So, you know, it, it, but it's sort of here to stay until someone challenges it. So Sally, before we let you go, I'm just curious, what are you most looking forward to in the next few weeks or months? I know I'm looking forward to seeing who Adams starts to appoint and think about vocally as his police commissioner. Uh, That's what I'm looking forward to. Or some of his plans kind of beyond policing, you know, does he have any creative environmental solutions as we think about climate change, you know, the flooding that we've seen, not just in our subways, but in subways across the world, who he's thinking about for kind of, you know, someone, are you going to appoint a special commissioner for climate change or something Mm -hmm. like that? Um, What are you looking for? forward to with an Adams administration in the next few weeks, months, uh, post-January 1st even? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about Eric Adams is that he has this kind of almost youthful, modern approach to healthy living, transportation. <clears throat> People will disagree with that. I shouldn't even poke at that hornet's nuts. But, you know, certainly talks about wanting to ride a bike and expand bike lanes. Um, veganism. Veganism. Vegetarianism. Meditation, you know, he has something that sort of would it would appear on the surface to be counter to this, you know, kind of older machine politician that you know he he has that element in, but he also has this this sort of fresh approach to a lot of these issues, or at least rhetorical approach. We'll see, right? You know, because he hasn't taken office yet, but he himself he meditates, he follows a strict diet, he believes in sort of reimagining, which was the word of the year, so I'm sorry to use it again, it's in my head, you know, kind of reimagining public health to solve inequality problems. He said, as I mentioned earlier, he talked about the quality of life at Rikers Island and the dyslexia rates and doing more dyslexia screening. So I'm really curious how he approaches those things, transportation, environment for sure, the Department of Health, which has been understandably just kind of, you know, um, consumed with COVID recovery. But, you know, that that agency was sidelined by de Blasio for political and personal reasons, but was a real premier agency under Mike Bloomberg. So I want to see what he does with that. And, you know, how he kind of handles these things that he's personally passionate about in government, I'm very curious to see. And I'm also curious to see once the Cuomo report comes out, how, if at all, that changes their relationship. I suspect at first it won't, you know, but it'll be interesting to see that. And then I think we have to look forward to some lively debates between Eric Adams and Curtis Sliwa, who has very little chance by the numbers of winning this and even less of a chance because he's going to, you know, he's campaigning on public safety and Eric Adams is a public safety oriented former police officer, but they're both like really big New York personalities in a way that we just like haven't seen in a long time. They're just both kind of outspoken bombastic figures that kind of like harken back to a different type of politician pre Bloomberg, pre de Blasio. So I think it'll be, kind of fun and interesting to see them mix it up. Um, and then I'm interested to see if Eric Adams appoints any Republicans. I've heard, and I think we reported Jimmy Otto, the Staten Island Borough President's name being in the mix for an appointment. That would be a big departure from de Blasio ideologically if he says, um, you know, I'm going to appoint this Republican who I think is great for the job. So mm-hmm. looking at all those things. Great. Thank you. It's going to be a wild ride. For sure. 
Sally, thank you as always. I'm not sure if this is your third or fourth time joining us, but it's always a pleasure. We'll be reading you, and uh, thank you mm-hmm. again for taking the uh, time. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, I enjoy it all the time. Us too. Hey. Yes, we do. Thank you so much, Sally. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, Sally Goldenberg, the City Hall Bureau Chief at Politico, New York. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, and we'll see you next week.